electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Jim Cramer has the morning off. Futures a bit timid on this final full trading day of the week. Stocks closed for the holiday tomorrow, short session on Friday. We'll get a full plate of data today, Fed minutes this afternoon. A jobless claims the highest since August. Our roadmap begins with the calm before the retail storm. Investors digesting the latest economic data ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday. Plus, Sam Bankman-Fried's latest mea culpa, the crypto founder, continues to claim ignorance of wrongdoing in a letter to FTX staff. And protests rock Foxconn's massive iPhone plant in China. We will get a live update. We will start with the markets on this final full trading day before uh, the end of the week. Obviously, Black Friday coming up this week. My pretty interesting dynamics going on regarding the discussion they just had about industrials and the Dow relative to other indices. Yeah, the parts of the economy that are kind of the capital spending wholesale parts of the economy um, seem to be doing fine. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, industrial stocks have done well. Things like deer steel stocks have been some of the strongest in the market. We never talk about them. They're kind of small market caps. But they've done pretty well. Um, it's this weird moment where are we just seeing a, a temporary thaw where it seems as if there's a window of, okay, we've priced in where the Fed's going to go. Treasury yields are off the boil. Oil prices are down. Inflation seems to be receding. Um, and we have not yet seen really the demand pinch in a broad way uh, on the economy or the employment uh, situation soften up too much. Or, you know, is it a soft landing? I mean, I think that's that's the debate right now. S&P 500 up 15 percent off its lows in five or six weeks, levitated yesterday, had a very Thanksgiving week feel to it where it just kind of uh, walked higher after going sideways for a little while. And now it's uh, what can the economy deliver to either substantiate that or refute that picture? Right. Uh, we did mention jobless claims, David, a little bit elevated, highest since about middle of August. But you look at what Deere said last night, um, guiding above for fiscal 23, specifically referencing infrastructure demand for their equipment, which is something you and Jim and I talk about a lot. We do, and, and Jim comes back to that a great deal, being uh, obviously a strong part of the economy. At the same time, you had HP saying very different things, significant layoffs at the company as it tries to uh, cut costs significantly to um, get itself in the right position for what is weaker demand for PC sales, which we've known uh, was the case for some time. We saw the Dell results from the day prior, Mike, but the layoffs in tech, so to speak, continue uh, to mount. Without a doubt. Um, and it's, it's, it's definitely this sort of undertow to the employment picture right there. You know, people try to quantify it. It's not necessarily that big a deal. I know, you know, some models are showing because of what's going on in housing. I mean, you have to expect job losses in construction-related uh, industries, too. It hasn't quite happened yet. So there, there are shoes we're sort of waiting to drop. Um, and, you know, there's pockets of the economy and the markets that are definitely struggling. And those that have been more resilient and the overall level of activity seems okay so far. Economic surprise index has been just sideways flat. So it's not necessarily uh, saying reacceleration or uh, dramatic weakening yet. Yeah. 
Of course, and we'll talk more about the Fed minutes coming up this afternoon. Maybe we get a hint about if there's any discussion regarding getting off the raise and hold narrative. Uh, for more on the broader market outlook and Fed expectations, joining us this morning, Bob Dahl, Crossmark Global Investments Chief Investment Officer. Bob, happy Thanksgiving. Great to see you. Same to you and your colleagues. What do you make of this ongoing sort of thesis that if this year, painful as it was, it was largely about a rate shock and next year invites potential earnings shock? I think you hit the nail on the head, as did Mike a few minutes ago. That is to say, we are drifting from the Fed and inflation are the entire driver and therefore P.E. ratios to one where what are earnings going to be? The impact of the fastest rate increase in history, we don't know it. It, it. Monetary policy has long and unpredictable lags. And so the slowing in the economy is still in front of us. We don't know. We're going to skate through with a soft landing. Uh, a mild recession, a deeper recession. It seems to be earnings estimates are too high and they have to come down. That's going to be the story we deal with at least for the next few months. All right. We did get a pretty decisive close above the 50-day on the S&P on the heels of that CPI print. It doesn't sound like you think we're going to make, make it to that 200, though. Yeah, I think 200 will be a, a resistance as it was last time. As you know, Carl, we kind of went up and kissed it and then backed off. Yeah, we might have to go through it to get those of us who are calling for that being the resistance point uh, to uh, scratch our heads. But I don't think we're going to penetrate significantly above that until we answer some of these other questions. As Mike pointed out, we have a 15 point percent run already. Uh, and uh, I I'm not sure there's a lot more in it uh, this round. Bob, um, there's no doubt about it. And, and anybody who says we have to wait for the market to kind of prove that, in fact, there's a trend change is always going to miss the first 20 percent, right? That's just by, the, by definition how yeah. it's going to work. So nobody's trying to pluck the exact top or bottom. But what is interesting to me is the level the market is at, which is pretty much up versus six months ago. And 2023 S&P 500 earnings forecasts are down 20 bucks over that period of time. They were above 250. They're around 230. It's not as if the world has been oblivious to the weakening picture. And I wonder what the interplay is there between, look, we've tried to price something in. You had a 27 percent peak to trough drop in the S&P before you even saw broad recessionary uh, trends take hold. So I just, I wonder how this sequencing is, is, is playing out. Yeah, what, what a good observation. So that, look, the, the market knows a lot of things before we do, as we found out over the years. Uh, but it, it seems to me, yes, we're down $20, but you know, that 250 number plus was before there was a whole lot of talk about, are we gonna have a recession before we knew the Fed was going to go as far as they've gone and are likely to continue to go. So uh, it seems to me uh, we still have that earnings question mark. Look, if we have a recession, even if it's a mild one, we're going to have earnings risk to 200 next year, uh, which uh, the, it's not in the market, in my view. Uh, also, that, that, that 250 number came before we realized China was going to be ultra serious about yes. COVID lockdowns. Macquarie had a note out overnight, Bob, arguing that they might have passed the point of no return, meaning they're unlikely to return to zero COVID without broad, uh, vicious lockdowns return to that, that state of affairs. I wonder, I mean, obviously no one has edge on what China is going to do, but how do you read it? Uh, ouch. Uh, that, that, that is an issue. We know how important China is because of their size uh, to uh, the whole world, obviously, uh, that part of the world even more so. And if demand there is, is not happening, uh, that just puts a pall on a lot of things and creates 
some of these supply chain issues that uh, are beginning to thaw, uh, they will become entrenched again. So we need China uh, to have uh, some openness uh, and some economic activity for the world to be okay. Bob, in terms of uh, positioning, uh, I guess, strategic uh, portfolio building at this point, the play this year has been de-emphasize the biggest stocks. So go equal weighted indexes versus market cap weighted. Go value, uh, maybe go quality. Uh, look for cash flows as opposed to you know rapid expected growth. Does that all continue into next year? I think so. Uh, cash flow for sure. I mean, that's an evergreen sort of thing, more important in difficult times, but it, it's it's always there. I would pay attention to that. Uh, the quality one is the one I think, Mike, will shift first. Look, when we come out of whatever slowdown slash recession we're going to have, you know you don't want a high-quality portfolio. You want a low-quality portfolio. That's what will lead us out. That's where we have to do our homework. I don't think positioning in that direction a whole lot yet makes sense, but it will before long. Hey, finally, Bob, on Europe, we spent a good part of the morning on Squawk, I think, talking about uh, potential caps on the price of Russian oil. It sounds like you think, um, and at least in terms of sentiment, the energy crisis, and obviously they've got a tough few months ahead, a tough winter ahead, but you think that might have peaked, that, that, that negative sentiment? I, I am in that camp, uh, coupled with uh, the dollar showing some sloppiness, which tells me that uh, non-U.S. Stocks uh, may do okay. I mean, non-U.S. averages are only a couple hundred, uh, uh, only a couple percent behind the U.S. Despite the strength of the dollar year to date, so I think the doom and gloom uh, is well known. And of course, those stocks tend to be cheaper. So I'd start doing some homework there for global investors. Yeah, we did get some uh, flash PMIs in the EU uh, that were better than expected, but uh, still yes. contractionary territory. Yes, Bob. Right. A great holiday to you. Good to see you. Thank All you. Bob Dahl. Thanks. Guys, uh, wanted, to, uh, wanted to update a story we've been following for some time, uh, which continues to worsen for uh, the giant Swiss wealth manager Credit Suisse, obviously also an investment uh, banking firm uh, here in the United States, certainly known under the CSFB or CS, uh, soon to be perhaps, uh, first Boston moniker. But uh, the specifics uh, that we've gotten out of Credit Suisse and what they're calling uh, a um, updated outlook for the fourth quarter are, um, are perhaps concerning uh, for people, in part because of the loss of assets at the company that was, uh, I am told by people close to the situation, far above what had been anticipated. You may recall, of course, some time back, the company announced its plans to raise as much as $4 billion in equity. The Saudi National Bank, a large family in Switzerland, the Qataris, amongst those that were signing up for that $4 billion. Uh, but despite that announcement, uh, and with the thought being perhaps the announcement would be enough, it was not enough to stem what has been a very significant and continued um, uh, number of outflows uh, of assets. Let's give you the numbers themselves because Credit Suisse did share the basics with us, right? They had, uh, they're expecting $1.6 billion loss for the fourth quarter, but the outflows are what is key here. 6% group AUM. So as of, um, at the end of, uh, uh, or as, as of November 11th, net asset outflows were about 6% of assets under management at the end of the third quarter of 2022. And wealth management, those outflows, they say, were reduced substantially from elevated levels in the first two weeks of October, but have not yet reversed and were about 10% of assets under management 
again at the end of the uh, third quarter. You're talking about $1.6 trillion in total assets, something around those uh, levels. 6% of that, you can do the math. We're talking significant numbers. And why is this important? Well, is that $4 billion in equ uh, equity raise going to be enough is the key question. And it would seem perhaps uh, no longer is that going to be the case. The market certainly may have sniffed that out already. You've seen what's happened to the stock price over time. Um, but when you are in the business of trying to keep yourself investment grade rated and you're simply trying to fill a hole here that is worsening as a result of the loss of assets and the fee income that comes along with them, well, the number that you need to raise in terms of equity, not just to keep the, in, the rating agencies happy so that you maintain investment grade, which obviously is vitally important, but also so that you can uh, retain uh, important employees and have the packages in place to do so and actually have the growth capital you need for your business, because remember, they're talking about this not being profitable for a couple more years. That's where it becomes uh, more concerning. And so we're going to keep a close eye on it. When it comes to the profits or lack thereof, the company also told us, together with the adverse revenue impact uh, from previously disclosed exit from non-core businesses and exposures, um, they will expect the investment banking group to report a substantial loss before uh, taxes in the fourth quarter, as much as $1.5 billion in uh, Swiss francs there, you can see for the group overall. Um, you know, they're maintaining their, um, their ratios, but they did hit liquidity buffers, um, and they had to utilize those liquidity buffers at the group and legal entity level, and they have fallen below as well certain legal entity level regulatory requirements. You know, Mike, these are always interesting scenarios because you announce a capital raise, in part you're trying to stem or you're trying to bring confidence to the market. Right. If it doesn't work, more assets leave. Yeah. You raise that. Is it going to be enough? Or are you in a negative spiral where you can't simply get ahead of it in terms of uh, imparting enough confidence to the marketplace to stop right. entirely the asset I losses? I mean, the bet by the company was that they had a strong enough core franchise in asset management and wealth management that there was going to be a more steady base. Uh, now, the $4 billion dollar expected capital raise. I mean, what is it, under $10 billion equity market That is correct. Right it's around so it's $9 a, billion. It's a dollars very now. big. It's enormous dilution, dilution. But the fact is that it, it would appear, based on the conversations I've had, that it's not going to be enough yeah. uh, at this point if, in fact, they really want to, as they certainly do, get ahead of this. And, and maybe, you know, we'll see. But the key is for them to restore confidence. I don't know what the number is. Perhaps they don't know what the number is. Right now it's $4 billion. That's what they've got approved for. They've got the investors lined up for it. But to your point, the dilution will be massive. Yeah, no doubt about it. And um, look, it's, it's easy to pull these assets. And it's different from what we were talking about with, you know, um, when you had these kind of counterparty risk issues, right, where, you, where it was Lehman or Bear Stearns, where it's, it's hedge funds pulling their business from these. This is actually funds. This yes. is people managing your wealth and, and your, your, your portfolios. So it's a steadier business if the assets stay. But if they leave, then that's the revenue goes with. Yeah, uh, and obviously they still have those plans, Carl, as well, to spin off the U.S. Investment Bank to a new unit led by Michael Klein. Um, but even there, you've got a lot of questions about keeping people equity retention packages and what that's going to look like. Yeah. Uh, we'll watch that. We're also going to take a closer look at China COVID lockdowns and this unrest at Foxconn's flagship iPhone assembly plant uh, pushing back on some of those restrictions. We'll get closer in on HPQ and Nordstrom. Amazing calls on Tesla and Best Buy today. Uh, take a look at futures. More Squawk on the Street is straight ahead. Let's get straight to the point. Okay. 
You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Some new tensions as China widens its COVID restrictions. Protests erupted at Foxconn's flagship factory, the world's biggest iPhone assembly plant. Eunice Yoon is in Beijing with the latest pretty remarkable uh, series of events here. Eunice, fill us in. Absolutely. Uh, Well, Foxconn says that as of tonight, the facility in central China is back to normal. And this is after videos emerged online that were obtained by AP but not verified by NBC that seemed to show people who claim to be Foxconn workers clashing with authorities dressed in hazmat suits while they shout, give us our pay. Now, these protesters complain that they're being forced to work weeks longer than agreed upon under very tight COVID restrictions. In order to get extra pay, they also say that they are fearing uh, the virus spread in the facility. Now, Foxconn said in a statement that it is communicating with workers and the government to avoid a recurrence and is offering workers compensation. Now, this protest comes as China's uh, COVID situation appears to be going national. Uh, Zhengzhou, which is China's iPhone city, announced tonight that it's putting its downtown area in effective lockdown until next Tuesday. Day. It's also ramping up mass testing to go to every day. Um, megacity Chongqing is now in effective lockdown. Chengdu, which just got out of a lockdown in September, is now in mass testing. Shanghai canceled an auto event. Uh, manufacturing hub Shenzhen and Sanya, which is in uh, China's version of Hawaii, both are imposing more restrictions in public places. And this comes after Beijing and the area around it, as well as export hub Guangzhou, already said that they were tightening controls. So Capital Economics, which is a research firm, said that they're fearing that the situation could uh, head towards uh, what we saw in early 2020 when uh, hundreds of millions of people were in lockdown to the detriment of the economy. Now, the uh, capital economics says while there is little prospect of the authorities opting to step back from the zero COVID policy during the winter, there is a significant risk that containment efforts fail. Guys? Uh, Eunice, uh, talk to me about the degree to which any kind of stimulus or government support for the economy uh, is being considered. And and How would that even be helpful if, in fact, you're restricting uh, personal economic activity in the first place? 
Right. I think that the, um, of course, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, stimulus measures, especially when it comes to the property sector. And the government has been directing some money into that sector, as well as other incentives. However, uh, the big problem, of course, is all the uncertainty. And uh, from a consumer perspective, the, um, the fact that you could get locked down or that businesses are randomly shut, and the fact that um, the uh, regulations are not very clear at all. In fact, a lot of the, as we've discussed, a lot of the, the uh, decision-making is being devolved to the local level. So um, one, a business, for example, uh, told me the, just today that they uh, wouldn't be able to deliver a chair that I actually had ordered uh, because <laughs> their, local, uh, prop, their local manager said that they are not allowed to go into the shop to pick up the chair. So, uh, so it's like those level decisions, and it's all being handed at the very, very, very micro-local level that make it really difficult to do business. Wow, that, that, is, uh, that is targeted for sure, uh, Eunice. And of course, huge implications <laughs> for companies with exposure to China. Eunice Yoon in Beijing, Eunice, thanks. Speaking of that, we'll get to some movers this morning, including Tesla and this latest note from Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas about the effect that Elon Musk's involvement at Twitter is having on Tesla shares. There's futures. We're back in a moment. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. As we said earlier, last full trading day of the week as the Dow, S&P, NASDAQ are up two of the past three days. Futures mixed this morning as we got yields swirling around a bit on the heels of a lot of data and more coming up at the top of the hour. The opening bell in five and a half minutes. HP Inc. reported quarterly results that were above what a lot of Wall Street analysts had been expecting. It did announce plans, though, to cut up to 6,000 jobs over the next three years. It cited an extended slump in PC demand. And last night on Mad Money, the CEO spoke to Jim about the road ahead for the company. We know that we are facing a tough market environment, and we believe that we will continue to, to face that during next year. From an inventory perspective, we have been making progress reducing the inventory that we see in the channel. And our expectation is that by the first half of the next fiscal year, we will be back to a normal situation. Stock uh, is not down on this. Company generated about $3.9 billion in free cash flow in fiscal 22. Yeah. Always a good way to measure these things. Yes, and it, it trades at a very low cash flow multiple. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been a cheap stock for a very long time, and that's because it's really kind of a slow growth to no growth type business. And they're managing it the way that a lot of investors would prefer uh, companies that don't have a huge uh, organic growth uh, thrust to, to manage themselves, which is, you know, careful on the cost. You know, if it's a 12% free cash flow yield, it's a, it's a buffer right. uh, for value. So it's, it's almost like it's incidental that it's a tech stock, kind of the way IBM's trading this year, where it's, it's just kind of a cheap pile of cash flows, at least as they measure it. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's as long working. As, as long as IBM does come through with Keeping their free cash flow guidance for the fourth quarter, which is yes. quite significant. It is. And it, it, by the way, it doesn't always stand up to scrutiny. They, they, they do a lot to maximize their state of free cash flows. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, you know, this, this is part of a story of a, 
of a constant rationalization of costs as opposed to a shock. Also different from, you know, the Metas and the Amazons where they just binged on people, feel like they're not productive enough and have to check. IBM, by the way, the sixth best Dow stock of the year yep. yeah. with a gain of almost 12%. Interesting, though, on HP, uh, PC units down 21, printing down 7. Yeah, exactly. That's something, if you work from home, you definitely understand why that's happening. Exactly. Here's the opening bell of the CNBC real-time exchange. Now the big board. It is the 96th Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on NBC tomorrow morning. Santa came in here and said, Said, I smell a Santa Claus <laughs> That's right, yeah. At the NASDAQ, it's Meals on Wheels America addressing senior isolation and hunger. Um, but the job cuts at HP, I think David slated to save, what, one and a half billion yeah. uh, by, uh, by fiscal 25? Yeah, about 1.4 billion over that period of time. And as Mike said, I mean, this is a company that is, I mean, I can remember when Meg Whitman was running all of it. And of course, slowly but surely, it has been... Uh, sliced up into a lot of different pieces, many of which are low-growth businesses, as you say, Mike, and therefore reliant on, um, on sort of maintaining fairly high levels of free cash flow to the extent they can. Although, again, they did benefit, like so many others, from what was that pandemic pursuit of PCs, yes, given exactly. uh, work from home and everything else that we've talked so often about. That's reversed. We saw that in Dell yesterday. Not as much, though, in Apple, uh, where it would seem the demand for the MacBook, the Mac Pro, Max in general uh, remains fairly high. It, it so far has, um, you know, just the premium pricing is, is such an advantage, the ability to be, people pay out of pocket. Um, very, very significant uh, subscription uh, revenue right now. And, and to me, it's much more about you're just buying this massive, um, this financial entity that just is a source of stability in the world. I don't know what the right multiple is for it. Nobody says it, it can't get cheaper if you're Apple, but uh, it has held up very well. It's 7% of the S&P 500. It's a massive percentage of the tech sector. If, if Apple were down as much as the tech sector were down, I think the S&P is down another 1% or 2% in the last several months. So it just sort of shows you the heft uh, that it has and how you know the, the index is, it, you know, it can illuminate or it can obscure what's really going on. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, the, one of the biggest laggards this morning is Autodesk. They do miss by a penny, but they talk about a lot of the things that you could argue uh, affect all kinds of IT software companies, forks, headwinds, uh, softness in Europe regarding new business, yeah. uh, uh, rather than multi-year contracts now, clients asking for single-year contracts as yes. they try to hedge against, I guess, long-term macro weakness. Yeah, that's a big uh, overhang on a lot of the subscription-based type uh, software companies. Now, Autodesk, of course, has you know, very close linkage to real creating railroad stuff, right? It's industrial processes and things like that and design. So um, there's a little bit of a, you know, when the aggregate macro economy slows down, it's not just some app that, you know, that, uh, that's for fun. Um, so I do think that's a little bit of a tell right there. But in general, um, it, it, it's really this bifurcated market where if you were, you know, uh, if you were an IPO, if you had this big total addressable market thesis, that stuff has been really uh, crushed. And maybe there's still unfinished business there. A lot of stuff's trading below cash. They can't outrun their stock-based compensation uh, burdens. Uh, and then there's the established stuff that seems like it's, it's making its way uh, through. So uh, the IPO index has not gotten off the mat whatsoever through this whole rally. The IPO index is no longer an IPO index. There haven't been enough IPOs. So they're all stale. Uh, most of the top 20 holdings are more than two years public. 
Uh, so it just sort of shows you this whole tier of the market we got excited about a year and a half ago has been dormant and in and retrenchment mode. Well, we're hoping for better activity for in, sure. the, in the next year, right? I don't think it could get much worse. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, I mean, it would be almost impossible. Uh, but we will see. You're right, uh, Carl, in terms of capital markets activity overall uh, in, in a lot of different areas, um, including, obviously, taking companies public. Guys, uh, back to retail for a moment, if I can. Uh, we got Nordstrom earnings. They weren't particularly good. Uh, third quarter net sales down 2.9% versus the same period of 2021. Gross merchandise value down 2.5%. You know, they did note, of course, that given the weakness they started to see in June, they aligned inventory to deal with that. Um, customer demand, they say, decelerated. We took action to align inventory and expenses with the changing trends. Uh, core categories in the third quarter, men's and women's apparel, shoes and designer, had the strongest growth versus 21. Um, and people continue to shop for occasions, travel, work, and holidays. Again, we're talking fairly small market cap here at this point of roughly $3.3 billion. So not necessarily a bellwether. No, um, although some consistent commentary from a lot of the management, so the retailers that have been reporting, which is it's going to be more promotional. Um, there's, you know, some shoppers are stressed or trading down or more discerning about how much they're spending. And the overall market's good with that because we want disinflation. <laughs> we don't want uh, pricing power. I, I keep going back to what uh, Fed Vice Chair Lael Brainerd has repeatedly pointed out, which is the source of persistent inflation is, can be located in the expanded margins of the entire consumer retail sector. That's where it sort of stubbornly has, has remained, and so that's got to get whittled down for the Fed to be satisfied that the demand slowdown is going to make its way to the inflation data. Which, which makes it sort of a, a dilemma for equity investors. For sure. Do you want margins to in come in? In those sectors, yeah. for sure. Right. Um, and that's why almost all the chain retailers trade really cheap. They're all down 30%, even when they're doing okay. They're at undemanding valuations because nobody thinks necessarily you want to bet that they can continue uh, yeah. like this. They did make some comments. Again, like, as Macy said, sort of uh, bifurcated consumer. Yeah. Rack not doing nearly as well as the, uh, the flagship stores. Uh, you want to do the Tesla note? Sure. Let's do that. Um, Tesla shares, guys, are up about 2.5%. You know, we've been talking in recent days about whether the impact of uh, Twitter and I guess, I mean, is it chaos? Is that fair to describe it as chaotic? I mean, chaotic? Wedbush calls it a circus show. Okay. Yeah, yeah I think that's fair. Uh, has had, it, had an impact on Tesla shares, because it certainly would seem to be the case. Adam Jonas, a, a well-known and influential analyst at Morgan Stanley, seems to agree. Uh, at the, uh, towards the bottom of a note here, he says, what needs to change for Tesla stock to stop the slide? And he goes in to say, listen, Twitter is potentially exposing it to a number of areas of risk, including consumer sentiment, demand, commercial partnerships, government relations support, and even capital markets support. Um, no real surprise, I, or perhaps because we've been surmising the same thing. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of almost a proxy for how badly things are going at Twitter. There has been an acceleration lower in Tesla shares since the Twitter deal closed and since you've basically had a, a real-time glimpse at, at Musk trying to change things, corral things, weighing into these controversial areas. I don't think it's the whole story because the, the stock was already kind of broken uh, based on its massive run up and then it had, it had kind of rolled over from there. People keep pointing to China and the fact that they seem to have to cut prices and maybe they have to work harder to get the, the volumes that they need in those markets. So a lot of things coming together at the same time, but I, it, it, there's no escaping the fact that in a big picture way, Tesla in a weird way is the ultimate kind of backstop for Twitter. 
one way or another. Well, Does he yeah. Have to sell more stock. Uh, right. He's could potentially sell more stock Does to he have continue to, to fund losses. Give up the CEO role. I mean, whatever it might be. And it's just, I, I think it's simply a matter of you can't quantify or handicap exactly. That's what actually what happened. Jonas says. Yeah. While difficult to quantify, yeah. there needs to be some kind of circuit breaker that gets investors off of this notion that he's either distracted or hurting Tesla's overall image right. by his behavior on Twitter. They, Jonas does say that Rivian could be, emerge as a short-term beneficiary, and he yeah. says even if 10% of the unwind of Tesla goes into other auto stocks, right. has huge implications for uh, Rivian or Fisker or Porsche, who knows what. For sure. Um, now, again, like if you, if you sold it at today's price, it's not like what you lost is, is available for you to reinvest into something else, right? But I, I know what he's talking about, that you just distribute the enthusiasm for EVs across more companies and stocks, and it can work. On the other hand, his bear case for the valuation is still, for Tesla, 25 times free cash flow for the core business. At 150? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although I thought the 170 current valuation, I mean, he's talking, he's going off fiscal year 25 yeah. numbers, enterprise uh, value over EBITDA. Uh, would be uh, 14 times and a 26 PE. Now again, that's on fiscal year 25. It's not right. that many years away at this point, but no. Um, Tesla has gr between the stock getting cut in half and the fact that the business has continued to grow. They've grown into their valuation that doesn't sound to a degree absurd. It no. doesn't sound absurd. It sounds super aggressive if you consider it a car company, but if it's just a big consumer products uh, tech-driven. You know, growth stock. Then it's 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 in the zone of of, of being relatively. Oh, their, their profit margins palatable. are are better, right. aren't they? Yeah, oh, much, yeah. better. much better than There's the no typical car company. No doubt so. about it. Yeah, X credits. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. make money as opposed credits to credits are almost yeah. not even right. that big a swing anymore. And by the way, today City does upgrade Tesla from uh, sell to neutral. Um, the other call on our autos was Bernstein arguing that the Porsche uh, deal is overvalued and they initiate a sell. But interesting times in the car business, for sure. But, um, I was going to mention just in terms of the general year-ahead outlook stuff that's coming out here. You know, we talked David Costin saying don't expect much out of the market. There's downside risk. That seems to be the, the consensus that's coalescing about 2023. You look at Morgan Stanley, you look at City. Everyone's got a target that's right around where the S&P is right now. Normally, people pencil in 5%, 10% upside. It does show you that we feel as if we're heading toward this, this maybe recession on-off type uh, type of a world, lagged effective Fed tightening. Whatever the result might be, I think it is a net positive that expectations are, are, are pretty low in general for the market next year. Um, and, you know, you can't be purely contrarian about these things. People are looking at the, the rational stuff. But um, it is interesting that you can find people who feel as if market bottomed in October, inflation's lo going lower. Valuations have been rationalized. This market's been stress tested by crypto crashes and right. the Fed balance sheet shrinking, et cetera. Uh, and, and we could be off to the races. Almost nobody's saying that. Um, finally, guys, I did want to end. I mean, the World Cup's going on right now uh, and Manchester United is potentially for sale, uh, even though we'll no longer include Ronaldo. Uh, but uh, that stock is up 14.6%. The Glazers uh, Made a great purchase back in 2005 at this point, given the valuations for, uh, for clubs. Obviously, a lot of uh, Premier League championships there in recent years. But uh, they do now say they are considering a sale, and that stock is uh, up almost 15%. Yes, it is a public company, again, controlled by the Glazers. 
Uh, meanwhile, at FTX's bankruptcy hearing yesterday, attorneys for the collapsed crypto exchange made some eye-opening statements. Eamon Javers was at that hearing and joins us this morning with more. Eamon, the words personal fiefdom got a lot of play yesterday. Yeah, that was absolutely right, Carl. It was a wild one. And this was an opportunity for the new FTX management and their attorneys at Sullivan and Cromwell to really take out the trash, so to speak, and, and sort of uh, dump a lot of blame here on Sam Bankman-Fried for what he did. They called it a personal fiefdom of Sam Bankman-Fried's, the way that company was operated. They said the emperor has no clothes in terms of the previous management. Uh, and then they laid out some of the answers to all the questions that we had going into this hearing. Uh, one of the big questions was just how much does FTX Oh, we didn't get that answer, but we did get some other answers. Here's what we learned yesterday, including the fact uh, from the FTX lawyers that the company is now under cyber attack on a fairly regular basis. They said that, in fact, the company has hired a cybersecurity advisory firm. They wouldn't even name that cybersecurity firm because they were worried that that firm would be under attack, too, because of the significant threat against this entity. They also said that substantial funds here have been stolen or are missing. So uh, they left aside the idea of who stole them. So there's a big mystery at the heart of this, which is how much uh, was stolen, if any. Uh, who did the stealing? Where is that money now? A lot of those answers not forthcoming yesterday. And then we also saw the judge weigh in on this dispute that we had over the customers at FTX. Who is going to be named in this bankruptcy? Typically, the creditors would be named here, and that could be millions of customers. The debate was whether those people would be made public or not. The judge sided with the company here and said those names can remain private for now, guys, but no guarantee that if you're a customer of FTX, your name will remain private forever. So the way we left it is we've got another hearing coming up in December, uh, a hearing in January, and some of the lawyers I talked to privately uh, after the hearing uh, yesterday, guys in Wilmington, said, you know, this could go for years, Carl. Um... Well, actually, you just answered my question, Eamon. I was going to ask you exactly how long they anticipate. Sure. <laughs> uh, and again, you said years. Any uh, Is that yeah. a likely scenario? That's sort of the, the betting of the, the guys in the room who've been doing this themselves for years, uh, just because this is a very complicated situation. You've got multiple jurisdictions. You've got a lot of litigation potentially coming. Uh, you had lawyers in the room representing various ad hoc groups of customers out there uh, who are all trying to sue. Uh, there's international issues here. One issue to think about is, you know, how many of these customers were in the United States? How many were in Europe where they have entirely different digital privacy laws. How many were in China, right, where it's illegal to participate in the crypto market? And some of the Chinese customers may have been doing that anyway and face exposure from the Chinese government. So you've got, you know, the Chinese Communist Party to think about, the U.S. legal authorities to think about, the Bahamian authorities to think about. This is a very complicated one. Uh, and that's why they say, you know, could be months, but could be years. Hey, uh, Eamon, the uh, letter that SPF wrote to his staff in which he says, I'm deeply sorry, I'd do anything to go back in time and change things. I froze up in the face of pressure. Uh, how is that affecting the trajectory of uh, the, the legal maneuvering? Not at all. I mean, the, the attitude from the FTX attorneys in the room yesterday was, you know, we're moving past FBF. He's, he's in the past. Uh, we're moving forward here. You know, they referred to him as, you know, the, the former management um, who no longer works there. They cited a number of other people who no longer work there. I think he's going to be the fall guy for the current, current management team. And they're going to say, look, there, there was this problem. It was created by SBF and we're the cleanup crew. Uh, they, they refer to themselves sort of as the adults uh, to come in and, and manage the situation. 
And I think, you know, that's sort of going to be the way this shakes out. I mean, the question for SBF is, you know, what kind of criminal liability does he have? What kind of civil liability does he have? You know, he is going to be dealing with this personally for years, too. That's for sure. Eamon Javers, uh, remarkable ongoing story. Appreciate that. We've got some breaking news on PMI. Yes. With that, let's get to Rick Santelli. Rick? Yes, Carl, our November preliminary reads, which means in a couple weeks they will change. S&P Global PMI for manufacturing, 47.6, 47.6. Uh, that would be the lowest level going back to May of 2020. If we look at the services PMI, 46.1. If that stuck, it would be the lowest since August when it was 43.7. That was the lowest since May of 2020. And finally, the composite PMI expected to be 48, 46.3. So we missed on all of them. 46.3 is the weakest since August at 44.6, and that was the weakest since May of 2020. So the PMIs for manufacturing services all are weaker than expected, very similar to Europe's numbers today. And Squawk on the Street will return after a short break. Take a closer look at retail earnings this morning ahead of Black Friday. CNBC.com's Melissa Repko joins us this morning. Melissa, great to have you. We've gotten so much information over the past few days. we got the big boxes, the department stores, the specialty, the discounters. Um, what do you think the big narratives are going to be uh, once we get past Black Friday and deep into holiday spend? Hey, Carl. Yes. What we're starting to see is that overall, the consumer is being more selective with how they're spending. You know, during the pandemic, everyone was a bit on that sugar high. There was a lot of stimulus money and people were spending across the board. Now what we're seeing is that shopper is being more selective. They're looking for value. They're looking for deals. And they're also looking for brands that they still want to buy, even if those brands come at a higher price about how they're doing in terms of working down inventory. Uh, some of the inventory increases this quarter uh, were not as big as the prior quarter, but we're still talking double digits in a lot of cases. Yes, definitely. Inventory continues to be kind of the headache and hangover for a lot of retailers. Target and Walmart made a lot of progress clearing through that inventory, but Target is still struggling with a lot of markdowns. And some of that comes from having a lot of stuff and, and just frankly not having the right stuff. Dix, on the other hand, which saw a lot of stock movement yesterday, is having some traction because it's selling a lot of brands that people are still buying, things like Nike and Titleist and North Face. And those brands still have pricing power even as consumers start to pick and choose where they spend. Melissa, is a consumer that is being a little more careful and, and looking for better value, does that translate into spending being shifted back toward the latter part of, of the holiday season? It, it, there was a few years where it seemed like everything got pulled very far forward. People just wanted what they wanted and got it delivered. Is, is it going to be, be kind of more protracted this time? Yes. What we're hearing, Mike, is that people are really reverting back to that more typical schedule. And some of that is because people want to get the best deals. So I spoke to, you know, Macy's CEO, Jeff Gannett, he spoke about this. And also, you know, Best Buy CEO, Corey Berry, also told me this, that people are wanting to get sales, they want to get discounts, and they associate Black Friday week and Cyber Monday with those best deals. Uh, what about digital? I did notice uh, there were a couple, uh, Nordstrom Digital down 16. Uh, how much are we going to rely on e-commerce to drive sales once we start talking about the end of this fiscal quarter? 
E-commerce has really become less of a factor this holiday season, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that you know people have missed out on that in-person shopping experience, and then the other one is that as people are watching the budget, they in some cases want to touch and feel the items they're buying. They may not know what they're going to be getting online. So I've heard that from a number of retail analysts and also um, industry watchers that you know they really think that people want to know what they're getting, and then by going to the store, they sometimes see that item that's. 40% off, 50% off, and that might motivate them to put it in their basket. Uh, Melissa, another theme that some CEOs have hit on is uh, consumers relying a bit more on credit. Uh, people have maybe been alarmed at, at the rebuilding credit balances, although a lot of it seems like it's just catch up from a big decline in revolving balances uh, from the pandemic and, and the stimulus. I just wonder if, if, if we're worried about the, the consumer getting toward the end of spending capacity or if this is more a return to normal. I think this is something that definitely retail executives are watching closely. Corey Berry mentioned this specifically, that she has noticed people are running up their credit card balance, dipping into their savings accounts, and it has inspired a more cautious outlook going into next year, just not knowing what the consumer will be willing to spend on and how much money they'll, they'll frankly have left. She spoke about, you know, in some cases, lower income households are making trade downs. They're buying things like, like TVs that are cheaper, but they're also across the board making trade offs about spending. Interesting. Uh, Melissa, appreciate that. We'll be talking about it a lot in the coming weeks. Melissa Repko uh, from .com this morning on retail. When we come back, we've made our way through durables and claims and PMIs after the break. It's Umish and new homes. Don't go away. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.